0: From Ohio to Minnesota, Kentucky to Utah, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, overspending by the federal government is fanning the flames of inflation and eroding the buying power of American families. We get analysis from David Ditch of the Heritage Foundation. The federal budget deadline was last October, but Congress is still working to enact a spending plan. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth is here. With the real story. U.S. Senators Lindsey Graham and Elizabeth Warren are proposing the creation of a new federal bureaucracy to regulate digital media. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine is here to explain why that is a bad idea. And Russian President Vladimir Putin recently gave a speech that doubled down on his determination to continue the invasion of Ukraine. Dr. Paul Kengor from the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College has this week's American Radio-Journal commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio-Journal. The national debt has reached an historic high of over $34 trillion, and the deficit spending shows no signs of slowing down. That is feeding the fires of inflation, David Ditch is a senior policy analyst at the Center for the Federal Budget at the Heritage Foundation. He's here with Analysis. David, welcome back to American Radio Journal. David, the federal deficit, obviously it's something that has been around for a long time, it's been growing by leaps and bounds, to say the least. Please give our listeners some idea as to the size and the rate, current rate of growth of the federal budget deficit.
1: So the federal government recently reached the milestone of a $34 trillion total debt. $34 trillion is obviously an amount of money that no one can actually comprehend, but you have to break it down. So, for example, it is about $100,000 for every single man, woman, and child in the country, or about $260,000 for every household in the country. And In addition to that, we are on pace to add about $2 trillion every single year in perpetuity. What
0: is driving that significant increase here, David?
1: Since the start of the pandemic four years ago, the federal government has been on a massive spending spree. Uh, some of it was understandable uh, response to the early lockdowns of the pandemic, you know, wanting to make sure we didn't have any sort of uh, a new Great Depression. But even once things had stabilized in the summer of 2020, Washington kept throwing money out the door as quickly as possible. And unfortunately, this had twofold effect. Number one, national debt went through the roof. But number two, because so much money was chasing the same set of goods and services, it also created a wave of inflation, which even though the inflation now isn't as bad as it was in 2022, it's still much higher than the levels we were used to before the pandemic.
0: And as a result of all this inflation, uh, as you pointed out, largely caused by all the money that the federal government injected, sort of created. We used to use the term printed, but I guess everything gets done electronically now. Injected into the system, we have inflation. That in turn has also had an impact on interest rates and home mortgages and all those sorts of things, correct?
1: Yes. The Federal Reserve, which has a huge amount of influence on the economy, on the banking sector, and on federal finances, one of its key jobs is to try to control inflation. And the way, one of the main ways it does that is by increasing interest rates. Because inflation got so bad, they had to dramatically increase interest rates. And that has two big effects. Number one, it means that However people are borrowing, and whatever they're borrowing for, whether it's a car loan, whether it's a home loan, whether it's to start a business, whether it's on a credit card, those interest rates have spiked very rapidly to a point where the cost of a home mortgage is at record levels. The cost of buying a home for a young family, which was already out of reach for so many people a few years ago, is now out of reach for most people. And then on the other side... Because we have that huge national debt, when you're increasing inflation and you're increasing interest rates, the cost of federal borrowing has also skyrocketed so that now we're going to be spending about $1 trillion every single year just to pay for the interest on the debt. That's around seven $8,000 in interest payments for every household.
0: Certainly a vicious cycle. Now, as the old saying goes here, David, if you're digging a hole, the first step to getting out of it is to stop digging it. So Congress is currently still considering the current year's, uh, current fiscal year's budget due actually back last October, and here we are headed into February. What is Congress doing here? You have Republicans somewhat in control of the House of Representatives. Are there any serious efforts at cutting back on this rate of spending?
1: Unfortunately, when we have A far-left senator like Chuck Schumer at the head of the Senate, President Biden, who many people used to consider a moderate, but whose budget plans are to keep spending more money and raising taxes. When those are sort of two-thirds of the equation, and when the Republicans in the House have such a narrow majority, unfortunately, it's very hard for the small number of fiscal conservatives to get many wins right now.
0: In addition to all the uh, so-called entitlement programs and all the so-called stimulus spending, there's also this little practice that occurs here in Congress, David, called uh, earmarking, where special projects are set aside. Want to tell us what the impact of all that earmarking is? I you earmarks as sort of the canary in the coal mine. Is Congress going to
1: take his job seriously at all? Because if we are going to dig our way out of this enormous hole, we need to make some tough decisions. It's one thing to try to dig your way up and out. The last thing you want to do is dig the hole deeper. And unfortunately, it's clear that far too many members of the House and Senate view the American taxpayer as an endless piggy bank. They have no concern for the future of the country. And that's why we end up with this uh, pork barrel spending.
0: We have all this going on, and of course, as you pointed out, we've had skyrocketing inflation, we have interest rates that have soared, but you're concerned that the worst may still be yet to come? Unfortunately,
1: while things are very concerning right now, moving forward, looking not into future generations, but looking into the next 10 years, both Social Security and Medicare trust funds are on pace to go bankrupt, which means that Again, it's not just that future generations, you these programs might not be around for, but even most of the people currently receiving Social Security and Medicare are in jeopardy of having their, you know, having the rug pulled out from under them unless Congress takes real steps to shore up the
0: programs. David Ditch is a Senior Policy Analyst in the Center for the Federal Budget at the Heritage Foundation. David, tell us a bit about Heritage and also give us a website. I know you've written extensively on this topic, and where can folks go to read those writings?
1: So the Heritage
0: Foundation
1: is a think tank that's promoting traditional American values and has been for the last 50 years. Our website is heritage.org. We have experts writing about Topics of concern to America and the world across the gamut.
0: David Ditch of the Heritage Foundation. David, thank you for being back with us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. He does keep an eye on what's happening on Capitol Hill for us. And we have a lot of tax budget spending issues perking along, and we're going to delve into that today. Scott, good to have you here. Great to be back, Loman. It appears that a deal has been reached and is likely to to pass that would expand some child tax credits, also expand some continuing tax relief for businesses. Scott, tell us a bit about the deal that's shaping up on Capitol Hill.
2: Chairman Smith runs the Ways and Means Committee for the House Republicans, and he's been negotiating with the Democrat on the Senate Finance Committee, Ron Wyden, for many, many months. The Democrat's big priority has always been to extend and expand the child tax credit as it pertains to the Biden stimulus, which was passed into law in 2021. And the Biden administration has been very, very clear winning issue for them politically. Well, what do Republicans typically care about? We care about big pro-growth ideas that ultimately are going to help the economy and help the American family and those that are working and, you know, those that are investing and expanding the business. And so you've got an agreement here, I think, through Chairman Smith and Chairman White and the bipartisan agreement. I think there's some good things in there, but obviously the things that the Democrats got are the polar opposite in terms of fairness in the tax code and pro-growth ideas. The big thing that they've got here is, like I said, a three-year extension of the child credit provisions. Republicans, Have fought to enact work requirements, meaning you have to at least work a little bit to get the child credit, and it's not just a fully refundable credit against your federal income taxes. And the Democrats, in exchange, have given more on the side of depreciation schedules and the ability for businesses to uh, write off expenses on capital expenditures to result in more investment and more growth in their businesses. Whether or not this is a trade-off that is worth signing into law, I think we'll have to go through the legislative process. And bipartisan deals are really, really few and far between in Washington right now. And my concern would be that Democrats get a big political win in their view and do a better job in using the media, which is always on their side, to message to the American people that they are doing more for families with kids than Republicans. But we know that families are actually being crushed. We know that the average cost for families across America, average households, increased costs are $11,340. I've talked about that before on this show. Biden's policies, including his stimulus policies, like expanding the child credit, are actually crushing families. We need to have pro-growth ideas that increase productivity, that increase wages, that increased the number of jobs. I think there's a lot of people out there that have completely fallen out of the labor force and are, or are working multiple jobs to make ends meet because of these additional costs on American families. So my, my goal in tax reform ultimately would be to address policies that result in economic growth and end the Biden crisis on families when it comes to higher costs.
0: Speaking of that federal budget process, Scott, we've been talking about it here for months on this program. The federal budget was due in October of last year. We're now headed into the month of February, and we still don't have actually an approved budget. They keep kicking the can down the road. Are we expecting the can to be kicked even further down the road into this fiscal year?
2: Yeah, the big thing is, from the Fiscal Responsibility Act, if Congress doesn't have their stuff together and have a bill signed into law that goes through September, there's an automatic 1% cut. And, you know, I think there's a lot of folks on both sides of the aisle that don't like to cut spending, so they want to get a big budget deal in place, but that would require another bipartisan agreement. Now, they could always just do a bipartisan agreement to waive the 1% cut, but they're running into these these vote counting problems in the House of Representatives. Uh, We know that, Recently, Hal Rogers from Kentucky was in a car accident. And if everybody shows up, that means you've got really an even majority between Republicans and Democrats, because Republicans only hold a one-seat majority after Bill Johnson's retirement on, I think, January 21st. And what does that mean for the future of these big negotiations? I think that most of the bipartisan deals that get cut between the uniparty, which includes the establishment Republicans, and those Democrats that want to bankrupt America, those deals ultimately get about 300 votes. So what I would expect to see is that your frontline warriors, your House Freedom Caucus conservatives, your uh, Senate Steering Committee, senators from Mike Lee and Ted Cruz, Grand Paul, those people are going to be working hard to get the best agreement possible for conservatives. And if they need to oppose it, if they need to slow down the consent agreements in the Senate, or if they need to gum up the works at the Rules Committee in the House of Representatives, I think you'll see everybody take the procedural tools necessary to try to do what's best for the American people and avoid another fiscal crisis. Government shutdowns, love them or hate them, they do create a pain point for negotiation. And I think that people do want to see a negotiation when it comes to trillion-dollar deficits, and when it comes to higher costs on American families.
0: You've referenced the fact that we're almost down to a a dead-even tie in the U.S. House of Representatives here because of resignations and other issues. We have open seats in Ohio, New York, California. Are we looking to see those seats filled by special elections at some point over the next couple of months, or are we going to have to wait until January of next year to get the House back up to its full power?
2: Well, even if the House is up to its full power, I think we have a 4 seat majority. But you are correct. There's a special election scheduled to replace former Speaker Kevin McCarthy. There's a special election scheduled to replace Bill Johnson from Ohio. And there's also a special election scheduled to replace uh, your favorite Brazilian volleyball player, George Santos. And all these special elections and the various retirements that that cause them or resignations, I think the Santos seat could be won by a Democrat. The uh, McCarthy and Johnson seats are safe Republican seats. But even when you have a three, four-seat majority, we saw how hard that was for Kevin McCarthy uh, throughout the summer and and, and really into the fall before he was vacated as Speaker.
0: Well, one thing we learned every year is elections matter, and we will continue to keep an eye on elections for. Congress for President for Everything Else with Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth. And, Scott, tell us a bit about the club.
2: Club for Growth is based out of Washington, D.C., and is united in the idea of economic freedom and liberty and opportunity. If your listeners want to learn more, check out clubforgrowth.org, where you can actually sign up and become a member for free.
0: Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, thank you for being here. You're welcome, Loman. The Interstate Commerce Commission was put out of existence after a failed regulatory history, but now two U.S. senators want to use it as a template to regulate digital media. We learn more from Eric Baim of Reason Magazine.
3: Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. Last summer, I was struck by something that Senators Lindsey Graham and Elizabeth Warren wrote in a joint op-ed in The New York Times, where they used the Interstate Commerce Commission as a model for what they would like to do to regulate so-called big tech, regulate social media and the Internet, at large, So I decided to take a look back at exactly what the Interstate Commerce Commission was. It, it doesn't exist anymore. It was mercifully put out to pasture a few decades ago. Uh, and in the latest issue of Reason Magazine, I took a look at that history and at exactly why that would be a terrible model for regulating big tech. Unfortunately, Bad ideas just never seem to die in Washington. I thought I would share some of that history with you this week. So the Interstate Commerce Commission, which existed for about a century before it was finally abolished in 1995, I think it's one of the best historical examples of how governmental attempts at regulating the economy can backfire. It was created with the stated goal of protecting consumers from the competitive interests of Gilded Age railroad barons, but the ICC was quickly captured by those very special interests that it sought to control, and then it helped to entrench a railroad cartel. At the height of its powers, the ICC tried to limit the use of trucks for hauling freight because they would compete with railroads. That effort, thankfully, failed. And it later used its influence to even have a critic of the railroad monopoly committed to an asylum. We'll get to that in in just a minute. But naturally, some senators now see the ICC as an ideal model or at least a useful model for a new agency aimed at regulating big tech. Again, this was specifically cited by Senators Lindsey Graham and Elizabeth Warren in an op-ed that ran a few months ago in the New York Times. In there, they said, quote, it's time to rein in big tech and we can't do it with a law that only nibbles around the edges of the problem. They specifically cited the ICC along with a few other historical government agencies uh, as an example for what they'd like to do. Warren has also invoked the ICC in some posts on X, that's the social media site formerly known as Twitter, and in public comments calling for tighter federal control over companies like Amazon and Facebook. And indeed, the bill that Graham and Warren have put together wouldn't nibble around the edges. It would create a new federal commission to regulate online platforms. That commission would tentatively be called the Digital Consumer Protection Commission, and it would have concurrent jurisdiction with the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, and the Department of Justice, the DOJ. Uh, In the senator's telling, this newfangled ICC for big tech would aim to preserve innovation while minimizing harm presented by emerging industries. But that's far from the story of the original ICC. See, that agency, that commission, was created in 1887 with the noble goal of setting just and reasonable rates for freight carried by trains across the country. The ICC frequently hindered innovation, sometimes drastically, according to Richard Langlois, an economics professor at the University of Connecticut. He wrote that in the Wall Street Journal last August. So once the railroads and other shipping interests had effectively captured the ICC, it became a convenient tool for limiting competition from other forms of transportation. Thomas Gale Moore, an economic historian and one-time member of President Ronald Reagan's Council of Economic Advisors, has written that persistent lobbying from the railroads helped to bring the relatively new trucking industry under control of the ICC starting in 1935. After that, the trucking companies had to get something called a Certificate of Public Convenience and Necessity from the ICC before they could operate across state lines. Existing companies easily got those permission slips, but new companies found it very difficult to get one for obvious protectionist reasons. That was a policy that did little to protect the public, but obviously benefited the railroads by slowing the growth of trucking as an alternative for freight. One of the more bizarre anecdotes in ICC's history involves the inventor Ibn Moody Boynton, who in 1920 claimed to have invented a new type of railroad that required only a single track to operate. It, the ICC ultimately played a role in institutionalizing Boynton, and it took two months and the intervention of a Massachusetts congressman before he was freed. Now, the so-called bicycle railroad never really caught on, but that hardly seems to justify the ICC's heavy-handed efforts to silence him and to prevent his invention from ever getting a fair shake. By 1980, the railroad industry was nearing the end of a long decline that was due in no small part to the ICC's cartelization of the industry. That same year, Milton Friedman singled out the commission in his book Free to Choose as the paramount illustration of what he called the natural history of government intervention. What he wrote about the history of the ICC is particularly prescient, I think, for anyone who's encouraging federal regulation of technology and social media. Friedman wrote a real or fancied evil leads to demands to do something about it. A political coalition forms consisting of sincere, high minded reformers and equally sincere interested parties. The reformers create a new agency to do the work they believe is in the best interest of consumers. But the interested parties go to work to make sure that the power is used for their benefit and they generally succeed. That same year, Congress effectively sidelined the ICC with the passage of a new law that deregulated trucking and rail. In the absence of the anti-competitive bottleneck created by the ICC, freight railroads actually reversed that decades-long decline, and they're now thriving. Consumers are reaping the benefits. Average rail shipping rates have declined by 40% when you adjust for inflation over the past 40 years, according to the Association of American Railroads. So the idea that a a new federal regulatory agency is in the best interest of consumers, that was outdated 40 years ago. The ICC originated because the Elizabeth Warrens and the Lindsey Grahams of the late 1800s sought to use federal power to take on the big tech billionaires of their time. The ICC's myriad failures, meanwhile, should be a warning for policymakers today. This is not a model to be duplicated. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Bam You can check out more of our coverage of uh, big tech regulation, everything else going on in Washington and around the country this week at Reason.com. And catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal.
0: Vladimir Putin's power grab in Ukraine shows no sign of ending as the Russian dictator doubles down on the invasion. The future looks ominous. So says Dr. Paul Kengor from the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College on this American Radio Journal Commentary. Vladimir Putin recently gave his customary end-of-the-year speech,
4: and frankly, I'm surprised at the lack of attention it received. What he said should give us pause, and it's especially of high interest as the second anniversary of Putin's invasion of Ukraine comes up this February 2024. Interestingly, the speech was considerably shorter than usual. In fact, it was quite brief, running just under four minutes. Also quite curious— some media sources, those that did cover it, noted that Putin had, quote, made little mention, unquote, of Ukraine, at least by name. But he didn't need to. It was clear what he was talking about. Very clear. Putin vowed that Russia would, quote, never back down, quote, unquote. He said, we have repeatedly proven that we can solve the most difficult problems and will never back down because there is no force to us, unquote. In some translations of his speech, including the one reported by Reuters, Putin stated not that his country will, quote, never bound, but, quote, will never retreat, unquote. And that latter translation seems even more pointed. I've been saying for over a year that Vladimir Putin is not going to retreat from Ukraine, no matter how badly he's losing on the ground. And Putin pledged that Russians, quote, are united in toil and in battle, unquote. He further continued, saying, what united us and unites us still is the fate of the fatherland, a deep understanding of the highest significance of the historical stage through which Russia is passing, unquote. Now, think about those words. What does that mean? What is that historical stage that Vladimir Putin is referring to? Well, make no bones about it. Putin sees himself as a grandiose figure in Russian history, like one of the czars. He has long wanted to unite the fatherland, as he calls it. Taking Ukraine is critical to that. In Vladimir Putin's eyes, this historical stage in that glorious mission cannot fail. And for that, Putin praises his troops. He paused in his speech to commend them, saying of his frontline soldiers, quote, to everyone who is at a combat post. At the forefront of the fight for truth and justice. You are our heroes. Our hearts are with you. We are proud of you. We admire your courage. Putin has put those boys through hell since his invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. It's telling that when Putin gave this annual speech the year before, he was actually flanked by soldiers. This year, the only visual accompanying him was a backdrop of the Kremlin. And that's no surprise. Those soldiers' absence behind Putin this time is appropriate, given how many have died. The Wall Street Journal, citing a U.S. intelligence estimate shared with Congress, recently reported that the Ukraine war has, quote, devastated Russia's pre-invasion military machine, unquote, with, get this, nearly 90 percent, 90 percent of Russia's pre-war army lost to death or injury, and thousands of battle tanks, nearly two-thirds, destroyed. The figures are actually shocking. The report claims that 315,000 Russian personnel have been killed or injured since the February 2022 invasion. Now, stunning as those numbers are, I'm not surprised. I've given commentaries here previously noting that from the start of Russia's Ukraine invasion, Russians always get clobbered in battle, and especially this time, when they're facing a committed foe backed by massive supplies of Western U.S. military aid. And so, how can Vladimir Putin remain so defiant, so dedicated to a 2024 goal of never backing down, of never retreating? Well, frankly, that's a thought that should frighten us all. I've said repeatedly that the one option in Ukraine that Vladimir Putin has yet to try is a nuclear option. I feared all along that when this man's back is against the wall, with a decimated military no longer at his disposal, he could very well push that button. Yes, seriously. And here's hoping and praying that we don't see that from Vladimir Putin in the year 2024. For American Radio Journal, I'm Paul Kengor. Thanks for listening.
0: American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including WKTZ FM in Lochlin Heights, Maryland, WSOO AM in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, along with WBFD AM in Bedford, Pennsylvania. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. To learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program, please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom.